Some of you are going to find this a bit incredulous, but here's something that federal, state, and local governments all tell us to do that we should actually listen to. Eat more fruits and vegetables. You've heard about the health benefits of increasing plant-based nutrients into your diet, but how can you easily consume all the fruits and veggies needed? Well, it's easy. By adding Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity into your meals. Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity is a power blend that has 31 fruits and vegetables in every scoop. Organic vegetables, super greens, super fruits, and super sprouts. It is fortified with essential vitamins plus an immunity boost. And right now, you can get a free two-week supply of Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity by just paying $8.95 for the shipping and handling. And not only that, you'll also get a free frother to quickly whip up your healthy and nutritious grown American drink. Go to grownamericansuperfood.com forward slash John and order today. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. Once upon a time... Young Cheryl Ladd went to Hollywood with dreams of being a singer, and she got a job singing, voicing a character on Josie and the Pussycats. The money afforded her famously to get a white Mustang and take acting class, and she got some credits, Happy Days, Satan School for Girls, and then the most iconic star of one of TV's biggest hits, Quit, Farrah Fawcett of Charlie's Angels. She was offered the role and finally said she'd do it if she could make the choice to not play the character as another sex goddess, but to play against type and make it a comedic role. And young Cheryl Ladd stepped into the biggest shoes on TV, and the ratings went up. And since then, she's gone on to release albums, appear in over 80 films, tons of episodic TV from Ray Donovan to CSI Miami. She's appeared on Broadway. She sang the national anthem at the damn Super Bowl. And now Miss Cheryl Ladd is starring in a delightful new family film, A Cowgirl's Song. She plays a former country music star who stopped singing when her husband died. And when her son gets in trouble with the law... Her granddaughters gradually convince her to find her voice again. It sounds like the plot of a Hank Williams song, and the best part of the film is that Cheryl Ladd sings. Cheryl Ladd, welcome back. Oh, it's so nice to be back with you. What a nice introduction. Well, it's very special because I want to show you, since we're on the radio, show you a photo. This was taken uh, of you and myself on March 10th, 2020, and two days later, this building shut down for good. Yes, it did. So it is very nice to welcome you back. Um, the first time Thea and I are here together in two years. Nice. It's so nice to be back in your little cocoon here. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, it's the claustrophobia feels like home, got to <laughs> tell you. It does if you get used to it. How has it been for you and your family well, you this very when, strange two years? It's interesting you say that. What happened to us before, because when Brian and I were leaving, flying back home, there were like eight people in the whole airport. It was, it was like some weird sci-fi movie where it was the end of the world. It was crazy. Yeah. And we saw the last uh, Broadway show 
the last night of Broadway. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I went, I, I was supposed to, my, my mother-in-law was coming to see Wicked, and then she had to cancel her trip, so I went to see Wicked, like, right before everything shut down, and I just thought, this is a super spreader event right here. <laughs> yes. And then within three days, it was like, I am legend. I was like Will Smith and his dog walking around. The city was empty. Yeah, it was crazy. It's yeah. so nice to be back and looking at faces and smiles and yeah, it's nice. Yeah, you know when New Yorkers are scowling at each other again, things are back to normal. <laughs> um, how was COVID for you and your loved ones? Were you on full lockdown for a long time? We were pretty careful um, until we got vaccinated and then we got another, the second vaccination and then we got boosted. I would say we started to loosen up after that second vaccination yeah and then we were a little freer with friends who were also vaccinated i mean we were very careful we're old so we <laughs> you know we don't want to get it <laughs> a lot of people our age don't make th make it through but i think this new COVID is not quite as deadly speaking of someone who just kicked it a couple of weeks ago uh yes i picked the right time to get it yeah. when it wasn't that bad yeah um my my little one missed uh, about a week of school and but, you know, got back into it, and thank yes. God for the vaccines. Uh, and for those listening, by the way, um, Ms. Ladd looks spectacular, and her husband's not too bad himself. Uh, <laughs> did you shoot this film during COVID? We did it in, I think it was June, last June. Wow. Um, and we were masked, and but so much of the film was outdoors, which was That's great. nice. Yeah. So, uh yeah, we were we were pretty careful. I always wonder about films that have been shooting during the pandemic and what it's like to have to have the mask and do makeup and then remove the mask just in time to call action. And redo makeup. and <laughs> Yes. I mean, you had a big role in this film, both behind and in front of the camera. Yes, yes. I love this film, um, particularly because of COVID. I feel like everybody needs this movie. Everybody needs to be back with their families. Everybody needs to really have a chance to come together and and help each other out and get each other through that gloomy time and have some joy and and do silly fun wonderful things together again i think we all need that and i love this about uh, this, the script because the family really pulls together and she has to go do something that she just really doesn't want to do anymore but do it for all the right reasons and then she feels kind of inspired again and and the two darling girls I get to work with in this movie, just I fell in love with them and they entertained us every day that they were on the set because they would just start, one would start singing a song and the other one would start harmonizing. Then they'd be dancing. I mean, they were just such joyful, joyful girls. These are the girls playing your granddaughter, yeah. Savannah Lee May and uh, Darcy, and Darcy Lynn, Lynn, who won America's yes, Got Talent. Yes. I'm curious, what is, what is it at this point in your career that makes you say... Yeah, I want to commit a, a chunk of my year to working on this film, on, on this character. There was something so true in my spirit about this family, because when I was growing up, my dad played the guitar and sang country music, and I was very drawn to music through him. And just that I had a mother that was just as down to earth. I had wonderful grandparents uh, and a lot of... Um, cousins and all of that and that whole it just when I read the script it just hit me as so pure and so real in its essence of what is really important in life that and I just like this woman she's so down to earth and she went through something really hard losing the love of her life and um, so she just decided to kind of turn a corner and help other people and do all that so when the family's in trouble and she decides to get back up on 
on the horse, as I say. She gets her guitar out and uh, decides to help her son and raise money to get him out of jail. And it's just there's so much about it. And then these, as I said, these two young women are just precious. And uh, I don't know, it just touched my heart so much. And she does sing to get money to get her son out of jail, but then complications ensue. Yes. Then uh, there was, are other needs. Was the fact that the character has to sing quite a bit in the film uh, an attraction for you? Was that Very something you wanted so. to do? Very much so. I was ready for it. I just, I just, when I read it, I just knew who she was. She was so, so much me in so many ways. And yet she was my, all my South Dakota and none of my Hollywood, if you know what I mean. She mm -hmm. was just, she was just so my essence uh, of where I grew up and all of that. I had such an understanding of her and, um, and I, I, I just loved her look. I loved her no nonsense attitude and just get on with it and, yeah. and how, how strong uh, you see her become again. She reminded me a lot of, of my Southern grandma. And mm -hmm. a, lot of, a lot of characters in this film reminded me of my Southern family. And, oh, nice. And it, it was the kind of film that I would watch with my Southern family yes. growing up. Yes. You know, I, I, I was looking through a lot of your vocal performances over the years, watching, you know, you do Think It Over and watching your... Yeah, written by my husband. That's right. <laughs> and, um, and watching your uh, performance of the National Anthem at the Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. um, I... I I got to confess, I didn't know that right before you came out to sing, the pressure's already on. And then they announce that you're doing this to honor our hostages held in Iran. Yes. W way to put the pressure on right yes. before a moment in front of the whole world. Yes. And they wanted me to say that. And then the hardest part of that for me was just before I started singing, the jets come over, the flag is pulled. And I got so moved by it. It was hard to pull myself together to sing because it just it just touched my heart again, uh, you know, about what our country has gone through and our so young men are going through and all of that, all of that. I think Between about, the wars and the hostages and yeah. and we, did, we didn't know what was going to happen, you know. Yeah. It brought me back to that terrible, dark, unpleasant time. Yeah. I, I was thinking a lot about how your original intention in going to Hollywood was to be a singer. You didn't mm -hmm. set out there to go be a TV star. Yep. Why Hollywood? Why not Nashville? Why not Why not New York? What was it it's that drew you there? It's just kind of where I ended up with the band that I was with. Um, and they were much older than me, and they went back to South Dakota. And the people that were uh, giving us jobs, our, our agents who were booking us in all the nightclubs and clubs, um, lived in Cal in California in yeah. Sherman Oaks and this and he was in vaudeville he and his wife were vaudeville players and they had a whole group of comedians and musicians and bands and things like that that they booked and he said you know I think you've got something special if you'd like to stay um, you can stay with us and we'll get you started to me, it seems like getting the role singing the voice of melody on Josie and the Pussycats is a fantastic first gig unbelievable it was so great because honestly when i got that regular paycheck and i got to sing and make a living at it it was just i was on cloud nine and as i said i bought a used mustang car i'm driving down the road thinking whoa it doesn't get any better than this <laughs> and you're a young mom on top of all of this 
Not then. Well, but not then. Soon but thereafter. Soon thereafter. Yes, when I started Charlie's Angels, <clears throat> my daughter Jordan was only two. Amazing. And that was really hard. Because the hours, from what I've read, were really quite brutal. Insane. <clears throat> Insane. And when we weren't doing that, we were doing, because we had, you know, all these clothes fittings and, and interviews, and everybody wanted to talk to us. And, and then during our hiatus, I did either a film or a variety show, but I got to work with some of the people I love the most. I got to be on Carol Burnett's mm. show. I did, I think I did The Tonight Show at least five or six times. And, but it was just one of these snowballs that keeps rolling down that hill and you just can't stop it and you're just going and going. And I think by the time it was over, I was pretty convinced that I wouldn't be doing another series because I wanted to spend time with my daughter and have a life as well. Uh, the late Mr. Spelling really hounded you to take that character. He did. He did. What was your, your reservation was that you didn't want to be a clone of, of Farrah Fawcett, that you wanted to make it your own? Yeah, who would this woman be? I said, because everybody was madly in love with Farrah. She was fantastic. And I didn't, I couldn't imagine how anybody was going to step into those shoes. So I said no the first time. And then he looked at hundreds of girls. And then I ran into him at the Palm restaurant one night and he said, Cheryl, will you come and talk to me tomorrow? I, I just want to understand why you don't want to do the show. So I went in and sat there with him and he said, so what, what's the issue? I said, Aaron, what would I play? Who would I be? He said, I don't, what do you mean? I said, well, I don't know if I could be funny. He said, why couldn't you be funny? And that got my attention. I said, if she's like the rookie and she's makes mistakes because America always roots for the underdog. Yeah. They really do. We want somebody that's trying really hard to succeed. Um, and he said, I love that. And I said, oh, so now I'm starting to go, well, could I create a character? And then he, his genius says, I've got it. You're going to be Farrah's little sister. And you love her as much as America loves her because she's your sister, and they're going to love you because you're family. And then uh, it made sense to me. So then I could create Chris Monroe. I knew, I knew who she could certainly start out being. I get the logic behind the choice, and I, I've always respected you for your choice in that and not wanting to go just play the hot action woman, but to actually make her goofy, to make her more comedic. As a comedian, I really respect that you made what at the time was a pretty bold choice. But I got to say, I, when I think about your career, I always imagine how kind of lonely it must have felt in, initially to step into this role where, I mean, I remember as a kid that everybody had that poster of Miss Fawcett on their walls. Oh, and yes. she was married to the $6 million man and she was such a global celebrity. And suddenly here you are and it's, you know, big pumps to fill. and. It, it must have been a, a level of anxiety that you just had to keep hidden and just show up and do the work. Yes, I had to. Once, once I said yes, I really had to steel myself to, to get on with it and just, you know, because there was a chance that people would say, eh, we don't like her and, and the show would be kind of finished because of me. I mean, it was a lot of pressure, but I just decided to... You know, I, the first day I went on the set, I, I wore a T-shirt that said Farrah Fawcett minor. She, <laughs> she was the major. I was the minor. Smart, so And smart. everybody laughed. And, you know, because I needed help. I needed people to 
be comfortable with me because all their jobs, everybody on that set, all their jobs were on the line and they were rooting for me and I really felt that and that that helped very much. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. So, look, if you listen to this show, let me be honest. I've always said there there are lots of great stand-up comics who are conservatives. There are not a lot of great conservative stand-up comics. You know what I'm saying? Like, like there's great comics who are so right-wing, but that's not their material. Maybe their material's angry, but it's not really about political ideology or certain candidates. But, as you all know, a new kind of conservative comedy has evolved over the years, and whether you like it or not, whether it's done in front of an audience or not, whether it's mean or not, it does classify as comedy. And look, I've always said you could recite everything Jesse Waters has ever said on Fox News in the TSA of an airport. And at no point will you violate the no jokes rule. Okay, Uh, I've had earaches that are funnier than Jesse Waters. I know. And Greg Gutfeld, I did his show on Red Eye many, many times. He's not a comic. He is a clown and he's often funny, even though he's often odious. But really, when you think about it, isn't Donald Trump the ultimate conservative stand-up comic. He doesn't believe in anything. He plays to the crowd. His stuff is grounded in meanness, but it is crowd-pleasing, and it makes some people laugh, even if it repels people who know how to spell the word your correctly. So um, I'm so pleased to welcome our next guest. Nick Marks is an associate professor of film and media studies, specializing in TV studies, media industries, digital media, and politics. He's uh, author or co-editor of the book Sketch Comedy, uh, Identity, Reflexivity, and American Television, The Comedy Studies Reader, and Saturday Night Live and American TV. His new book is a fascinating and, I will be honest, challenging new work with Professor Matt Sikowitz. It's called That's Not Funny, How the Right Makes Comedy Work for Them. And it analyzes the power, the influence, and the wit of right-wing or libertarian or conservative comics, from Gutfeld to Rogan to, to Tim Allen, and again, even if conservative comedy is not your bag, it still counts as comedy. Um, and if you find yourself saying, but these people aren't funny, well, maybe you think they don't deserve to be called comics. You really have to, because that's the function they are now serving for the right wing. Just as a lot of blondes 
on Fox News bring people into politics that don't serve them. A lot of funny guys doing material that appeals mainly to guys is also bringing people into right-wing politics, whether they realize it or not. It is a great pleasure to welcome Professor Nick Marks to SiriusXM. Thanks so much for having me, John. Thank you so much. Uh, I, I hope I, I did a good job setting up your book because, um, as you point out, comedy is a really powerful recruitment tool. And for a lot of folks, and I, by the way, I have good friends who were comedians, and then they realized they could make a lot more money telling right-wing white guys what they want to hear. And they are not funny anymore, but they're very well paid. Um, talk to me a bit about how this is used as a recruitment tool for the right. Well, I think you provided a perfect entry point there by uh, noting that your fellow comics saw an economic lane to occupy in sort of veering rightward, where a lot of the mainstream comedy institutions we've had over the last 15, 20 years, whether it's The Daily Show, Saturday Night Live, stand-up specials that populate all of our pay TV channels, there hasn't been a successful, long-running uh comedy enterprise from a conservative or right-wing point of view. There have been attempts, but the Trump presidency and his various sort of hangers-on and acolytes uh, drove into that empty economic space, realizing that, yes, half the country, 40% of the country, let's hope, does indeed still like to laugh. We cannot sort of define them away by saying, oh, the stuff they laugh at, that's outrage programming. That's uh, dumbed down stuff that doesn't align with my political point of view. So our hope was to first be honest about what this group of comics was doing. It was making jokes for a particular audience, just like Jon Stewart and the Weekend Update anchors have been doing for uh, liberals over the last several years. The second thing, as you mentioned, was to point out its political efficacy. Many of these comedians are spokespeople, not necessarily for the Republican Party in a in a in an immediate sense, but they yeah. pique especially young men's interests by speaking to their curiosity about libertarian issues, economic issues, drug legalization, some issues that we share some common ground with them on, bringing them into the tent of uh, broadly right-wing thought, whether you're a Joe Rogan or a Legion of Skanks or some of these other uh, stand-up comics, and then introducing them to other characters in the, the complex, we call it. So. You mentioned Tim Allen, Greg Gutfeld, Jesse Waters. Indeed, these folks have connections to some pretty nefarious characters uh, just a click or two away in your social media feeds. Yeah, that's the that's the thing, right? And you pointed out very well, they're not going to come out and say anti-Semitic or racist or anti-LGBT things, but their guest list sure has plenty of those offenders. Um, you know, it is interesting because in the Clinton years, uh, there was a lot more mainstream political comedy. And then under Bush, it was harder for conservative comics. They tried. I remember the half-hour comedy hour on Fox. Um, and then under Obama, it was tough because Obama was hard Obama was hard for liberal comics to make fun of. Like, we wanted to, but, you know, he was a sympathetic guy, and he was trying to get health care for people. Uh, under Donald Trump, it seems like this exploded. And again, a lot of these right-wing guys are, are friends and colleagues of mine. But, I mean, I, I find that there's a, a real meanness about a lot of the comedy, because it's not really about the positive ideology of the right. It, it's about owning the libs, right? It's about making fun of wokeness. That's precisely right. There is no sort of positive, uh, identifiable agenda that these folks are pursuing. 
Rather, they're united in their disparate ideologies, whether you're a libertarian like Joe Rogan, whether you're a sort of evangelical Christian like the Babylon Bee, uh, or just a kind of mainstream news commentator like Greg Gutfeld. They don't sort of cohere around a political agenda as much as they cohere around the idea of owning the libs, as you mentioned, right? We, do, we may not share common ground on every single issue, but we agree that our number one priority is to defeat them, the people that hold cultural terrain, even if the uh, Democratic Party and liberal sort of ideology doesn't always hold political power in the country. They, I think, correctly identify that center-left ideas uh, hold sway in cultural industries, right? In the movies, in the, in the TV shows, and the comedies that we produce. So they've always got that target to go after and say, how can you say that we're punching down at minorities and LGBTQ plus people when Biden's in the White House, right? We're punching up. We're the ones speaking truth to power. It's a kind of sleight of hand on their part because they are the ones who are going after cultural issues, not yeah. necessarily political issues. That was the argument on Obama as well. We're attacking yeah. the one in power. Yeah, but you attack the one in power who's trying to help the less fortunate and you run interference for the ones in power who are trying to help the powerful consistently. You know, uh, and, and I, I love how you tackle this in the book. I mean, you, you quoted Umberto Eco, who uh, demotes joking that fails to critique power structures to the status of mere carnival. And you talk about the real argument about um, punching up, that, you know, for comedy to be funny, you've got to be punching up at those in power. If you're punching down you're at some level being mean. And we'll see it in clubs. You go to any club and you'll see comics who are getting big laughs because they're talking about homeless jokes or, or uh, people they call retarded. And the crowd might be drunk enough to laugh, but they're going to feel dirty after a little while. I mean, I think true liberal comics make fun of liberals as well. And God knows liberals have made it a lot easier to have themselves be mockable, haven't they? I say that as someone who likes liberals. Absolutely. So are you kind of referring to maybe some of the self-censoriousness that's come into liberal comedy lately? Or? Sure. Well, look, I mean, liberal liberals and conservatives both have one thing in common to me. Both sides are addicted to being offended. And, and we all yeah. love umbrage. And so the things liberals get upset about often makes them targets for mean humor. Uh, you're not actually targeting the groups that are being hurt. You're targeting the people who care about the groups that are being hurt. Yeah. I think that's that's really well put. Uh, one of the trends that we identify in the book is the notion of conservative comics treading into the edgy territory that liberal comics used to sort of occupy and sort of push against some of the taboos and boundaries, even if occasionally they gave offense, even if occasionally they had to apologize or, or give some sort of cancellation um, apology that sort of tendency in mainstream liberal political comedy, we think, we think, has become a little less adventurous lately, a little more sort of pre-apologetic and unwilling to take the risks that we identify, for better or for worse, in right-wing comedy. And yeah. part of that power of their adventurousness, let's call it very generously, is that especially young folks, young men who may be politically ambivalent. They don't have their mind made up yet, but they there know they go. want legal yep. pot. They know yep. they have um, uh, queer identifying siblings whom they sympathize with. They are attracted to that edginess, that sense of adventurousness, regardless of political ideology. 
So we're sounding the alarm to look, to look out for that. If we allow the right to sort of occupy this space of formerly adventurous, edgy comedy, we are going to lose political ground as well. You're so right. This is so brilliant because it's the same thing they've done, if you'll forgive me, with Jesus. They've used Christ as a way to get people who claim to follow Christ to vote against everything Christ talked about. And they'll use dude bro comedy talking about, hey, Gabe's being cool and Lee should be legal to get young dudes to vote for politicians who don't think gay is cool and who don't think weed should be legal. And I, I am curious, Professor, what, why the title? That's not funny. <laughs> we wished to acknowledge and grapple with our fellow liberals gut reaction to conservative comedy. So anytime we told folks that, hey, we're working on a project about right wing comedians. What do you think of that? Some version of that's not funny would pop up as an answer. Hmm. Either I, as a liberal, personally don't find it tasteful. It, it doesn't align with my sense of humor. It's true. Which, yeah. Fair enough. So you're Ranging doing you're tweaking the, you're tweaking the libs with your title. I love it. I, I, I get it. That's how <laughs> we, it works. We are. It, it, it is. We're sounding an alarm to our, our, our fellow uh, our liberals here. The the most sort of extreme version of this is the and you might be familiar with these these headlines waiting on the conservative John Stewart. How come yeah. no successful John, uh, you know, right wing uh, daily show has succeeded over the last several years? And we wish to say, hey, that's no longer the case. It is no longer 2007 where the half hour news hour has failed. We're in a radically different media environment in which all of these small niches of right wing comedy have bubbled up into an economic and cultural force. And if we continue to bury our head in the sand, we are going to ignore not only their existing power, but their right. power to recruit and maintain new young adherents. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Say it out loud. I will vote in the midterms November 8th. Say it. Say it out loud. I'm going to vote in the midterms. November 8th, David Byrne was talking about this uh, study that showed that if you get people to sign a petition saying they promise they'll vote, they are substantially more likely to actually go and do it. And I, I think if you just say it, it makes you more likely as well. Start saying it. I'm going to vote November 8th. I'm not going to sit it out. Can you get 10 people to promise they'll get 10 people to promise they'll take part in our democracy this November 8th? It's going to be an important one. I know we say that every time, and it seems like as older we get, every different midterm or presidential election is always the most important one of all time. But here's the deal. 
the deflections are coming. The deflections will be here. The deflections have already begun, and they're not going to stop. The Republican deflections to keep people angry and not talk about actual issues and give the illusion that they're doing something, well, you're going to be hearing a lot from the Republicans. You're going to be hearing a lot from them. You probably already are. There is a ministry of truth coming that's going to let the government control free speech. They're grooming kindergarten through third grade kids to be gay or trans. Teachers right now are brainwashing children to hate white people and to hate themselves from being white. Hunter Biden's laptop is really a thing, and it's very important in your life. You should be really angry about something called wokeism, because wokeism affects your life and it threatens you. Joe Biden has dementia. And he's a socialist mastermind. He has dementia, and it's his fault oil prices have gone up. It's his fault CEOs have raised the price of almost everything. We have an open borders policy in this country, and they're flooding the borders because that's how we like it. And Elon Musk is only buying Twitter because he really cares a lot about free speech and the First Amendment. It's all bullshit, folks. It's all bullshit, as George Carlin said, and it's bad for you. And it's all to get the right-wing people agitated and to get the sane moral people discouraged. And the bullshit is all they got. Let's talk a bit about reality to kick off this episode. Because first came the CNN story about these thousands of text messages that Trump's White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows, sent and received between the presidential election of 2020 and the day Joe Biden was sworn in on January 20th, 2021. All of these conversations he had with so many politicians and Fox News types about the riot at the U.S. Capitol. We've heard the tapes. We know the truth. So many of the Republicans in our government were in on this crime of stealing the election. So many of them were participating in the cover-up. We got them calling for martial law. We got Jason Miller talking about, hey, maybe we can blame this thing on Antifa. Jason Miller saying, you know what? The data really doesn't back up the claims. Can you give us anything better? They knew they were lying. They knew they were lying in the moment. You got Kevin McCarthy coming out and saying it's all lies and none of this happened. I never said Donald Trump uh, uh, shouldn't be president anymore. And then it's on tape. You got Rick Perry coming out and denying all of it. Is That's great. Rick Perry's denying everything. And then suddenly there's a text message. And we learn that he signs his text messages, Rick Perry. It's hilarious. He signs his own name. Rick Perry. I, I, I know. I Listen, I don't want to make fun of Rick Perry because it's hacky. It's been done. And I forget the third thing. We've seen the chief of staff unofficial, Sean Hannity, exchanging over 80 messages with Mark Meadows. Messages that show Hannity's slow devolution from blindly obedient Trump supporter to uh, being fed up, in his words, with the lunatics who are hurting Trump's cause. I mean, think, think about that. We, you know, we've seen the emails of Maria Bartiromo, who I used to work with at a news channel once, texting Mark Meadows the exact questions she'd be asking Trump on their interview later that day. Can you imagine if the Obama White House had been colluding with CNN or MSNBC? Can you imagine if Obama was working with those two channels to stop Trump's electoral, challenge, uh, electoral college win from getting certified? I mean... <laughs> You know, we are, you're not going to hear about this. You're going to be hearing about Hunter Biden's laptop and, oh, there's, gonna, there, there's a, a ministry of truth. You're going to hear all the bullshit because the more we hear about this, the more we hear about how maybe Bill Barr or Ivanka or Meadows or even Alex Jones, maybe Rudy might be flipping. 
the fact that they knowingly tried to overturn a free and democratic election, the fact that they're all un-American, the more you're going to hear the bullshit. We know that 10 Republicans this week were the only House members to vote against the bill to lend defensive military equipment to Ukraine. We know that Donald Trump just got held in contempt of court by a New York judge for failing to comply with a subpoena related to the state attorney general's investigation into his shitty corrupt organization. Donald Trump is being fined $10,000 a day because he's terrified to go under oath. Think about that. And by the way, he just had his appeal to avoid paying $10,000 a day just got denied. In Georgia, a grand jury is going to be able to put out subpoenas. (laughs) <laughs> These are two powerful black women who are getting shit done. The prosecutors have announced their starting jury selection for the grand jury in Georgia that will be able to issue subpoenas in Georgia's investigation into Donald Trump's criminal attempts to steal Biden's win in Georgia. You think your right-wing friends know this news? No. The news they're watching is saying that teachers are brainwashing kids to hate white people and Hunter Biden's laptop is a thing that affects your life. There's more. Donald Trump stole 15 boxes of national security secrets. Donald Trump is worried that dangerous fruits could be flung at him by protesters. This just came out this week, according to the newly released excerpts from his sworn deposition for his upcoming trial in New York. Not that trial, another trial. He said under oath, you could be killed from throwing pineapples, tomatoes, bananas, stuff like that. Yeah, it's dangerous stuff. If you don't live in the right-wing bubble, you probably know Greg Abbott's enhanced inspections at the border are costing Texas and the U.S. billions. $240 million in spoiled food alone. One of the nation's leading bond rating agencies warned to yesterday that if Florida doesn't resolve this stupid beef over Disney to repeal the Reedy Creek Improvement District, it's going to totally destroy the financial standing of other Florida governments. We know that Jared Kushner helped sell nuclear tech to Saudi Arabia. And that he helped Prince Bin Salman cover up the murder of a U.S. Jur- the murder and dismemberment of a U.S. journalist. And that prince, Mohammed Bin Salman, just put $2 billion into Jared's startup to thank him. And his own advisors said no. Imagine that. You want to chop up a U.S. journalist for the Washington Post and dismember him and record the whole thing on tape to hear his screams? All right, go ahead and do that. Wait, but you want to invest $2 billion in Jared Kushner? No. Federal judges found out that Bill Barr was a fixer and a corrupter of justice. Dr. Deborah Burks, uh, she's so desperate to be liked, she's going to tell the truth now. And she just came out and said that hundreds of thousands of COVID deaths were preventable because Trump was so difficult. We now know the U.S. could have averted 40% of COVID deaths, according to a new panel. We found out that Florida is now the most expensive place to live in the U.S. this week. You think they're hearing that on Fox or OAN or Newsmax? No, they're hearing about Hunter Biden's laptop and critical race theory. And they're telling children there's no gender. This week alone, in one week, Madison Cawthorn, his colleagues and his staff leaked pictures of him wearing a bra. He got pulled over again for driving without a license. It's been leaked by Republicans that he's an insider trader. It was leaked that he took a gun into an airport. They're not mad that he's an insurrectionist or a liar or that he called Zelensky a thug. They're mad he exposed their coke-fueled orgies. My God, the Republican Party is rejecting Madison Cawthorn like they reject a fetus that just got born. And when you go after your right-wing friends and loved ones and tell them these things, they're going to just say, well, both sides do it, and they don't, okay? Say it out loud. I'm going to vote November 8th. I'm going to vote in the midterms November 8th. I will vote this year. I'm not going to get gaslit by all the big money trying to convince me it's not worth my time. Guys, I've never been a Democrat in my life, and there's been many times in my life that I thought both sides were way too similar. But both sides 
don't openly practice racism. Both sides don't want to save Confederate racist statues. Both sides aren't against investigating police misconduct. Both sides don't ask Putin for help. Both sides don't want to make it easier for anybody to get guns. Both sides don't want to put women in jail for abortion. Only one of these two parties is fighting for student loan debt relief. Not all of them. They bought off two senators, just like all the Republicans. That's why you got to elect more Democrats. Both, only one party is fighting for a livable minimum wage. Only one party, only one is fighting for Medicare to cover vision, hearing, and dental. Tell this to every elderly person you know and tell them to say out loud that they're going to vote on the 9th of November, the 8th of November. Only one party is fighting for paid family leave. Majority of Americans want that. Only one party is fighting for women's reproductive rights and to decriminalize cannabis on the federal level. But they want to gaslight you. They want you to despair. They want you to feel like both parties are the same. They're all corrupt. They're all liars. What's the point? Guys, the racists are showing up no matter what we do. The trickle-downers are showing up no matter what we do. Here's the reality. You ready for the reality of the both sides do it? We are in the midst of an imperfect economic recovery, but it's the strongest economic growth in 40 years. The deficit's going to drop $1.3 trillion this year. The American Rescue Plan helped lower health care costs under the Affordable Care Act and saved some families over 2400 bucks on their premiums. They've given expanded access to health care. Nearly 5 million Americans have new health insurance coverage. $3 trillion in COVID relief. Biden just took medical debt off of Americans' credit score calculations. Do you think anybody who watches Fox News will ever know that? They have closed the vax equity gap. Yeah, Donald Trump will say, oh, I've read about Operation Warp Speed. Pfizer's had nothing to do with that. And Trump had no plan to ever distribute the vaccine. Biden did, and COVID deaths are now down 90%. We've rejoined the World Health Organization. We've rejoined the Paris Climate Agreement. They ended the stupid, fucking racist Muslim travel ban. 7.9 million jobs added. Biden's first year in office was the greatest year of job creation in American history. I'm going to say it again. Biden's first year in office was the greatest year of job creation in American history, and I'm going to vote November 8th. Unemployment has gone down from 6.3% to 3.6%. That is the biggest single-year drop in American history. When Joe Biden took office, over 18 million of our fellow Americans were receiving unemployment benefits. Today, only 2 million. That is the biggest single-year drop in history. Experts believe last year was the lowest year for child poverty ever. Joe Manchin has made sure it's gone up this year. Largest investments we've ever seen in the power grid and electric vehicle chargers. Record small business creation. Record starts by black and Hispanic business founders. The most diverse cabinet in history. I mean, it's the first majority non-white cabinet in American history. The most women ever in a cabinet. The first woman treasury secretary. The first LGBTQ and Native American cabinet officials. The first woman director of national intelligence. More judges confirmed to lower federal courts than any president since JFK. More black women appointed to the U.S. Court of Appeals than any president, even over eight years. In less than one and a half years, he's appointed more black women to the Court of Appeals than any president did in eight years in history. Infrastructure passed. The first black woman on the Supreme Court. And all of it was done with a tied Senate, a tiny three-vote House margin, and full and complete GOP obstruction. Despair is privilege. Despair is not an option. 